Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I'm going to begin with a poem prayer by St. Bilbo Baggins. Beyond the Shire, there's something more, a hidden gate, a new door. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. You may know the author, J.B. Phillips. He wrote a book entitled, Your God is Too Small. And in it, he writes these words. Some Sunday school children were once asked to write down their ideas as to what God was like. Most of the answers said something like this. God is a very old, dignified gentleman living in heaven. Children often view their superiors as old, which carries over into a person's conception of God. People use archaic language or Victorian expressions to speak about and to pray to God because he seems old to them, and not only old, but tame, uninvested, quaint, and detached. However, even if they overcome these presuppositions, People might see God as powerful or omnipotent, but we also then run the risk of imagining that he's a commander-in-chief who cannot possibly spare the time or attention to attend to the details of his subordinates' lives. Well, his contention is that we have mentally domesticated the fiery God of Scripture, and I think he's right. At least he's right in my own life. Why is it that I'm so invested and deeply interested in Scripture and in theology? In part because I believe it's my task as a Christian and as a Christian minister, but it's also because I think that if I have it figured out, or at least mostly figured out, I can dodge all the landmines. I can finally have a tame existence. I can avoid risk, and yet... In the book of Acts, what we see is a God who does not avoid risk. And he doesn't want his church to avoid risk. So I think Acts chapter 8 details the motions of a wild father and his wild spirit. And I'd like to speak about the wildness of this passage. So if you would open up to Acts chapter 8, I'm going to move through portions of it and speak about a wild connection, a wild claim, and a wild convert. But the connection in this text between these two men, these two misfits, really, is quite something to consider. I invite you to follow along in verse 23 as we consider this wild connection. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, this is fascinating to me because God is not just involved from a distance, passively allowing certain coincidences to occur. This isn't an accident of history. He has supernaturally aligned something rather bizarre. That is the connection of two misfits. And I I do think both of them are misfits to one degree or another. Uh, Philip uh, has more religious privilege but less social privilege than the Ethiopian. He has more religious privilege because he is fully ethnically Jewish. And yet, he's a bit of a misfit because his, his name is in fact not Jewish. His name is Greek. That 
uh, reminds us of a crisis that happened earlier in the book of Acts where you had two groups of poor people living in Jerusalem. Uh, There were poor people uh, that were Jews that leaned into their Hebraic ethnicity. And then you had other poor people who were still Jews, but they were influenced by Greek culture. So they were Hellenized. And uh, many of the Hellenized Jews were being overlooked for social services. And so the disciples worked out a system and ordained deacons to handle some of that food distribution to those Hellenized widows along with the Hebraic widows. And Philip was one of those deacons. And Philip was chosen because he was one of those Hellenized Jews to minister to these Hellenized widows. And so he's a Jew by birth, but he also has leaned into a Greek understanding of Judaism to some degree. He's ministering to the poor. And he might have been seen as rather suspect because he had a deep burden in his life to reach out to Samaria and to the Samaritans who lived there. And those were people that were half Jewish, half Gentile. And they were seen by the residents of Jerusalem as almost untouchables. And so he's a man who has uh, some, some religious privilege, but... He has less social privilege than the uh, eunuch does. The eunuch, on the other hand, has far more social privilege, but less religious privilege. He has a very high rank. He's the treasurer to one of the most famous queens in the world at at that time, Queen Candace of Ethiopia. Uh, He is highly educated. He can read. Most people couldn't. And he can read Hebrew. And certainly most people couldn't read that. He actually functions not just as a treasurer, as we would think of it. Sometimes we think treasurer means accountant. He's good at QuickBooks. Uh, Not in this case. A treasurer meant somebody who was like a museum curator, who literally oversaw the treasure store or treasury. And and so he has a lot of of social um, qualities that are quite impressive, but he has fewer religious privileges. After all, he is a foreigner, not a drop of Jewish blood in him. Uh, he's a eunuch, more on that later. And he is a God-fearer, meaning that he lives within a Gentile territory, probably a polytheistic territory, but he has somehow discovered Israel's God and has become a devotee of that God, even making a pilgrimage up to the temple. And what's interesting is you have Misfit 1 and Misfit 2 meeting in the desert because an angel commands it and the spirit of God directs it. So you have an angel and the spirit intermingling here working to align these two gentlemen. And that's important because angels don't often appear. And I mean, they don't often appear in life. You've probably never seen one, right? Um, and, And they very rarely appear in Holy Scripture. They you know, they don't appear to tell you to wax your car or to up your golf game. It just isn't how they operate. Instead, angels seem to appear to make a shift or a turn in salvation history. Some sort of epic change that needs to occur. And I argue that's what's happening throughout the book of Acts. And that's why we have so many miracle stories within the book of Acts. And that's why we have a miraculous connection here. Because God is doing something new, something fresh, something invigorating. There is an enormous shift happening within Jesus. Judaism here. Now, Judaism within Jesus's day, if I could make this somewhat infelicitous comparison, is more or less Amish 
It's like an Amish religion. And you know how the Amish don't do a lot of proselytizing? Like Amish people, generally speaking, don't come up to you handing you a tract, asking you to invite Menno Simmons into your heart. Like that isn't a thing. Well, similarly, Judaism was not a religion of outreach, so to speak. Instead, it was kind of walled off. In fact, their very religious texts commanded that they would be distinct in order to be a light to the nations. But the whole point was that you were to be apart from the other nations. You weren't to dress like other nations. You weren't to eat like other nations. You weren't to worship like other nations. You only had one God unlike the other nations. And all of their prophets addressed Israel rather than uh, sending um, sending emissaries to other nations. There's one exception to that, right? One exception, which is Jonah, who went to foreign territory, but Jonah didn't like the assignment, right? And so Judaism was a, was very much a walled-off sort of Amish religion. Now, Jesus started to buck that trend because he collects around himself a cadre of tramps and vagabonds and misfits and even a few Gentiles along the way. That was seen as deeply scandalous, especially as he was dealing with Samaritans, that is, people that were half-Jewish, and Gentiles, people that had no Jewish blood whatsoever. Well, the early church in the book of Acts saw that trend that manifested itself in Jesus's life and ministry, and they expanded upon Jesus's own missionary impulse. And they were commanded to. The book of Acts takes place after Jesus's death and resurrection. Right before his envelopment into the heavens, Jesus gives his disciples this instruction. He says to them, as a descriptor of their future labors, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that is your hometown, Judea, the surrounding countryside, Samaria, the place where they're only half Jewish, and the ends of the earth, where they've never heard of Abraham or the Old Testament at all, right? So you are to start here and go out. That is your mission. Of course, we see a key moment in that mission at Pentecost where Jews from all over the known world had come to Jerusalem and all of a sudden they hear the apostles speaking by the Spirit in their own native languages. And so there is a shift, a grand shift from the conclavist mentality of Judaism within the first century to an evangelistic religion that is open to the whole world. What caused the shift? How did you take a particularized religion and make it a universal one? What was the death and resurrection of Jesus? They believed, and it was taught by Jesus, that these events would be so significant that they would have a universal rather than a particularized effect. They would be for everybody, regardless of what you knew or didn't know about Israel's history. The effect of the Lamb of God would be that he would take away the sins of the world, not of just Israel. Uh, This is the change, and this is yet one more step. This new connection between Philip and a eunuch is God's continuation of his whirlwind tour through the world to create one new humanity. And so we have a wild connection, but we also have a wild claim. This is verse 32. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before it shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him, and who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. It's quite a scene. Uh... This Ethiopian man is sitting in a chariot, and he has a scroll, and the scroll is Isaiah. It's the seer, the prophet Isaiah. Now, to possess one book in the ancient world 
was nearly impossible. Now, we all have little libraries in our houses, and we have, like, a very lovely leatherback collection of, like, all of Dickens' works, right? I mean, you, ha you haven't read them, but you have them there to sort of prove to people that you're sophisticated and intellectually savvy and, and literate. I mean, I do the same thing. Yes, A Tale of Two Cities, so good, so good. Uh, yeah, there are two cities in it. It's about two cities. And, uh, you know, Hiroshima and Paris. Well, I think Paris actually is one of them. But anyway... Um, well, uh, to, to possess one book, one book back then, was, uh, was an unspeakably lofty privilege uh, because it meant that you were incredibly rich. They had no printing press. All books had to be copied by hand. It's all sort of done very carefully, manuscripted out, very expensive. But he could have this scroll because he's the curator for the treasury uh, of the queen of Ethiopia. So he has this book, and he's made camp, and he's reading Isaiah 53, and he's reading this passage in this Jewish text about uh, a, a terribly abused man. He's reading about a victim of history. He's reading about somebody who's the recipient of unspeakable cruelty, whose life and body were torn apart, and he wants to understand what this is about. Who is this referring to? And it's a good question. Who is this mystery man? And by the way, this is the question of the Old Testament prophets for Jews today. It's still an open question. I had a, a, a rabbi friend uh, in the hospital when I, when I worked there as a chaplain who said, well, it sure sounds like Jesus, but I'm sure it's not. Um, <laughs> there, there are different options, right? The, the man in the chariot, the Ethiopian, is asking, is this Isaiah writing about Isaiah? Well, likely not. Why? Because the man described in Isaiah 53, this victim of history, is described in that same chapter as morally innocent. Isaiah can't say that about himself because if you remember in chapter 6, he describes himself as a man of unclean lips living in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So he's not the suffering servant because he doesn't have the moral qualities to be. Now, my rabbi friend in the hospital who said that this text sounded a lot like Jesus also concluded that it has to be about Israel herself collectively. All of Israel was the suffering servant, the harmed one of Yahweh. Because Israel has suffered terribly throughout history. And so it makes sense to connect Israel's corporate suffering with the suffering described in Isaiah 53. And yet the problem with that interpretation is that this victim is a distinctive entity and person who is outside of Israel, who dies for Israel as Israel's substitute. So Israel... And described in Isaiah as a polluted garment, cannot die for itself. You have to have an innocent victim die for the children of Israel, which is what Isaiah 53 describes. And so Philip, knowing some of these things, comes up with the great answer to the Ethiopian's question. Who is this man? Philip says, this man is Jesus of Nazareth. And that is a wild claim. Uh, and Philip's wild claim is our wild claim, and we will make it in the creed tonight. This is a wild claim. Think about our claim. This is what we say. This is what we profess. This is what we believe. This is what we stand on. This is what our legitimacy hinges upon, that a vagabond controversialist, the carpenter captain of an army of unarmed misfits, that he, the one on a cross, then was buried and rose again, he is the answer to the world's deepest crises. And not just what he taught, or how he loved, or how he touched, or how he healed, but how he was obliterated. 
and how he rose again. That's the answer. That's what we actually think. That's what we believe. That our religion is founded upon those actions of that particular man in history. And so Philip would, uh, would tell you tonight, Philip would tell you that you don't have to have all the solutions and all the answers in every sphere of life. You don't have to have every solution to every illness or every answer to every biological puzzle. You don't have to figure out every philosophical conundrum. You don't have to fully understand the problem of evil. By the way, even if you understood the problem of evil, that wouldn't take the pain away. You only have to have one solution. You have to have one answer, and Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer to the Bible. That is, you can't understand the Bible or the Old Testament or the New without him. He's the one who ties all the books together. He's the one who makes the library make sense. He's also the answer to the fissures of human experience, our victim Messiah who died and rose again for sinners as sinners. And so this is a wild claim, but it is our claim. And out of this claim we see a new wild convert. This is verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. What makes him a wild convert? Well, in a word, his eunuchness. His eunuchness makes him a wild convert. What is a eunuch? Well, to speak candidly, and many of you know this, it is a male whose genitals have been removed via surgery. Why would anybody do that to anybody else? Well, it was principally uh, so that these men would be servants to women without having the capacity to be a predatory threat. That's why he was the servant to the queen of Ethiopia, this eunuch. But within the Old Testament directives regarding worship, eunuchs were a bit of a no-no. In Leviticus 21, eunuchs are clearly excluded from the worship of the temple. They are not permitted in its inner courts. Not because being a eunuch is a moral failure, but because being a eunuch means that your body has been mutilated and thus you are unclean. And the temple was supposed to be a picture of perfection. It was supposed to be like the incarnation of a new Eden, if you will. And so they were excluded from worship. And yet, in Isaiah, if the eunuch kept reading, just three chapters later, he would have read these verses in Isaiah 56. After the suffering servant is destroyed and rises again to new life in Isaiah 53, this same suffering servant establishes a new world and a new order within creation in that world. And this is what the new suffering servant will affect regarding our eunuch friend. This is what it says in Isaiah 56. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name. Listen to this, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That language is deliberate that you will never be mutilated. You will never have a reputation that will ever again be mutilated. In God's new world, there is no preventing people that are marred, people that are devastated, people that are broken, people that are imperfect from entering in. Nothing to prevent them. And so that's why the eunuch seeing water and knowing now the gospel says, what is to prevent me from being baptized? And the answer is nothing, not anymore. 
Because Jesus has done it all. He solved the crisis. So there's no prevention because God's new order is already here. He knows that, so he's baptized. And therefore, a new humanity has begun with this wild convert. It begs the question, what does unite us after all? Certainly not our opinions. We're all over the map. There are many, there are as many opinions in this room as there are people, and actually more, right? Because we don't always agree with ourselves. Um, so what unites us? It's not our opinions, not our nation, not our language, not our history, not our skin, not our status, not our education, not ultimately. No, what unites us is our watery clothing, our baptismal identity that you have been bathed in the beauty of a foreign righteousness. That is the only irreducible you've got. And it is the thing that binds us together. This eunuch, who was at one time prevented from worshiping in the temple, was now a veritable limb in the body of Christ, just like Paul, Peter, John, Philip, Mary, Joanna, Salome, the list goes on and on. He discovered, as I have told you too many times from this pulpit, but I will keep saying it because I think it's a good and pithy saying, that water is thicker than blood. Water is thicker than blood. Baptismal identity is more important than your family of origin. Our age right now, pathologically, tends to categorize or vindicate or condemn or speak for whole groups or races of people. Well, we defy that trend. We defy it because there is no factor in our lives as real as our baptism. It speaks the truest word about who you are, that you are baptized into Christ, that your identity is forever a person who is washed in Jesus. You are a forgiven, treasured son or daughter of God, and there is nothing beneath that foundation. That is who you are, who I am, and that is what connects us. And so in this passage, we have a wild connection, a wild claim, and a wild convert. And so God is functioning here throughout the book of Acts, especially in this chapter, like a Nebraskan tornado, you know, breaking through all the fences, all of the constructed social and racial barriers. He unsettles our old world that loves its manifold divisions. And he does this in order to create a new, united, forgiven humanity. That is the wildness of God making us new creations in Christ Jesus, new creations that are attached to one another. The fissures of the fall are failing. So this is my concluding word for you tonight. Uh, Eric Phillips and I have received uh, lots of feedback from many people regarding a potential church plant, but I want to cite one bit of feedback that I got from one of you who wrote this to us. Recently, I heard a business speaker talk about the corridor principle. When you start walking down a corridor, you will see doors that appear with new opportunities that you hadn't thought of, but you will never see those opportunities if you don't start walking. I like that a lot, and it also distresses me. <laughs> those words have haunted me because I have lived way too much of my life in a corridor. A corridor is, after all, a place of transition. It's not a place that you stay. It's a hallway that is built in order to lead us to various dwelling places, bedrooms, dining rooms, living rooms, places where life and engagement with other people occurs. But opening the new doors that lead to new rooms is risky because we don't know what's in there, or worse, who's in there. And we've all taken risks before, opened doors, walked in rooms, and we've gotten hurt. So we could actually start to believe that it's safer to live in the lonely corridor itself. And we make it 
nice for us, comfortable. In fact, we redecorate it, repaper the walls, recarpet the floors, add Art Deco light fixtures, install ventilation in a thermostat, hang up paintings, and then readjust them to fit with our Art Deco light fixtures, and then plug in Glade air fresheners. And of course, God is there, right? God's in the hallway. God's in the corridor. God exists principally to beautify my corridor. He gives me the funds to remodel it, the energy to enjoy it, and the tranquility to make it restful and safe. I wonder if you're tempted to live there, to live within an overly familiar space, believing that God is safety, God is security, God is predictability, neglecting at the same time to approach the many doors that line up on either side of those corridor walls, afraid to take risks, afraid to trust, afraid to love, afraid to make a friend, afraid of conflict, afraid of awkwardness, afraid to make mistakes, afraid to look stupid, afraid that I won't have what it takes. You know, for as critical as I am of safe spaces, I want one. I want a permanent safe space. Well, we can continue to live in that safe space, in that corridor, to sleep on the nice Berber carpet. But then again, we may come to find out that the corridor isn't safe either. It isolates us. And in that isolation begins to dehumanize us. It makes us lonely and gray and terrified and even jealous of people that have walked through those doors. So we find out, sometimes too late, that our safe space isn't too safe. But then, like a gust of wind that opens all the doors, Jesus arrives. And he calls us to new exploration, to cross new boundaries and meet the foreigners. You know, those people. People with weird personal histories, dysfunctional families, complex problems, annoying idiosyncrasies, mixed experiences regarding religion, unseemly scars, acerbic questions. You know, people just like us who need Jesus. And we have this opportunity to actually have an adventure, to venture into new rooms with with a new idea, a new vivifying message. And the new message is not about our own openness or kindness or empathy or anything about us, really. The new message is about the redeemer of the world, of all peoples, tribes, tongues, and dysfunctions. The God of Acts is moving the church to meet the other. That was the task then. It remains the task now. Close encounters with people that will impact our lives forever and will become members of the body of Christ, joining you and Philip and the Ethiopian. This action of God is wild. It's always wild and risky to have new relationships and new connections. And we can't promise you easy outcomes, simple solutions, or that you'll even be safe. I can't promise you the absence of hurt. But scripture does promise some things. It promises you more adventure than you think you can carry. It promises you the spirit to be your constant companion. The scripture promises you an increase of love for the world that God so loves. And scripture also promises you the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And so where are you called to go? You have a voice that was meant for someone else. Who is that person? Well, Wherever you go and to whomever you speak, to quote the first chapter of Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord. Your God will be with you wherever you go. Dare we walk through the doors to meet the other. Dare we pray an audacious prayer like, Jesus, where would you have me go? For beyond the Shire, there's something more, a hidden gate, a new door.
In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. They took your life. They could not.